0: Hello, everyone, um, and welcome to another Africa I Share discussion um, on this uh, beautiful Thursday evening. Uh, Thank you again for joining us. Uh, Today, we'll be discussing digital law issues, uh, as we did maybe about two months ago or thereabouts. Today's discussion will be on duck patterns, and we've got ourselves quite an interesting panel. Uh, the panel is made up of Uche. Uche is a UX designer. He's going to explain to us what a UX or a user-centered designer is and all the wonderful and amazing work that he does. We also have Chennai Che. She is a um, tech policy and digital rights professional. She does quite a lot of amazing work. She's also going to get her five minutes to explain to us all the work that she's doing and um, what exactly she specializes in. We also have uh, Reed One from Tech Hive Advisory on the call. And Reed One is a, a tech lawyer um, out of Nigeria. And he does quite a lot of work on digital law um, and data protection. And he heads up the data protection division at Tech Hive Advisory. Like I said, today's discussion is on dark patterns. We have titled it Dark Patterns, the art of deception by design. And this discussion follows research that myself and Read one did uh, over the last two or so months, and this um, research looked at what are duck patterns, how do they affect people? Can you, as an everyday user see them? Can you pick them up? If you can, are they negative? Are they positive? If they are negative, um, how can you go about getting redress in terms of the law? Are there laws that actually even protect you? Um, is this a Eurocentric concept or is this a concept that you're also finding on the continent? And do our laws on the continent um, cover this and help us in any way? Uh, so I am going to now have our panelists introduce themselves before we dive into the questions that, uh, Reidran and myself found while we're doing our research. And the research is now available on the Tech Hive Advisory website. And we have shared it on social media. We will also share it in the chat and we'll continue to share it. You will just have to follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter to
1: find the link.
0: So over to you, Uche, five minutes to explain to us what you do, who you are, where you're based.
1: Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Uche and I'm a product UX designer. Uh, I have over three years experience working in marketing design, uh, product strategy, running design sprints, um, prototyping, microinteractions, interactions um, really with a solid background in interface design and branding. Um, so generally I help teams build global products and achieve business goals, right, on that intersection. And I implement a human-centered approach to present solutions via data designs that deliver better experience for people and a chance to use problems and social problems. And it's usually translated into improved competence, stopping drop-offs, um, making products easy to use, increased sales and revenue, and generally engaging users as customers. And I'm currently freelancing for TopTile, uh, it's an agency in San in, Francisco in, in and also leading design for a startup um, who's trying to use software uh, to build um, a space where businesses can use tech tools as a way to enhance um, their own experience. So well. before that, I was designing at PAGA and before that I was working at Obodos, an agency in the UK. Um, so generally in my field as a UX designer, right, I use design language and I use um, research and I use data and I use all the tools available to me generally to make digital experience better for uh, you as a user or the everyday human being.
0: I'll go over to Chennai. Could you please introduce yourself? So my name is Chennai and um, I work at the intersection of tech, policy and gender. And uh, my my, my work over the last couple of years has really been trying to understand the, um, the access and use of women, gender diverse people and children and young people when it comes to actually accessing the internet and what it means for them in terms of their digital rights. Um, it's spanned over issues with regards to access, um, with regards to connectivity, and um, these lately privacy and data protection, um, and as well as artificial intelligence. So my work really is trying to centre um, the experience of of people with technology rather than centering technology as a solution to issues. Um, I currently work at the Web Foundation as a gender and digital rights research manager. I talk about. Which looks at four countries, Ghana, and tries to understand the experience of women's rights of their of women and men's rights, women in comparison to men, uh, in terms of accessing their rights and making use of the internet. And then I'm also, uh, I think, in more in this conversation, I'm a 2019-2020 Tech Policy Fellow, and and what that entails is being um, an independent researcher who's specifically trying to understand Artificial intelligence and digital rights. In this specific um, project, I've been trying to understand, assist the adequacy of privacy and data protection in a country like South Africa, which has a booming fourth in, um, AI market, rather than fourth industrial. And to think about what does it mean for marginalized groups. So, making use of um, feminist thinking and feminist theory. In order to be able to understand what is the impact in terms of power dynamics, who is going to be benefiting, and at the end of the day, how do we make sure that these technologies, as they come up, do not um, result in increased injustices? Because we already know we we exist in context of injustices, especially from a gender perspective, that they can be used by the by the communities most affected of the issues that they face. So, yep, that's me and an activist. Thank you so much, Chennai, for that.
1: Uh, one a brief introduction, please. Yeah, my name is Um, I lead the privacy, and tech policy, data protection team at TechHive Advisory. And um, essentially, my work has always been around the intersection of privacy, data protection, data ethics, um, cybersecurity, and law. So, um, part of what we've been trying to do at TechHive is um, to also do research and to see um, things as far as how the technology that we can use, sort of um, interface and that will sort of impact um, on consumers. Uh, we've done a of research. Uh, more recently, did, uh, we looked at um, self-assessment app uh, that was launched by a couple of state governments um, and a um, couple of Nigerian state governments. So I'll see how um, they fare when you compare um, the privacy uh, protection that is available on those apps. Uh, we've done um, a couple of other research um, looking at number of other issues that affect um, consumer protection, data protection, and all, and all of that. And, and interestingly, I'm excited about this uh, particular um, research that we just did, looking at dark patterns across um, different um, parts of the continent. And uh, it's interesting to also know that um, this actually, that is actually quite pervasive. Um, an interesting thing is we looked at not just only service providers who are actually based in the continent, but we actually looked at, Service providers were also targeting um, consumers on the continent, and it's quite pervasive that that it's so so, so ingrained that uh, people probably don't even know that somehow they keep making decisions that the decisions are being influenced. And um, I'm super excited uh, about the outcome of what we uh, were able to 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 do together with Amanda and Digital Law House, and I'm looking forward to share. Um, our findings, and of course, speed broadly into the issues of um, data patterns, and how, uh, as consumers, also we can continue to improve um, our online interaction, and of course, uh, make sure, making sure we are also less and less of a victim. Uh, thank you.
0: Thank you so much, Ridon, for that. So, to not waste time, let's dive in. I am going to ask Uche because you are a um, UX designer. Firstly, what is UX design? Secondly what are dark patterns? So can you just walk us through the whole design process and why do we have dark patterns? What are they? And me as a user, how can I spot them? Um, you can give us a, an example of when, as, as a user, when you're using, let's say, an online service, you're using uh, an app on your phone, how can you spot um, these uh, dark patterns or these design tactics that are, that are made use of?
1: um so to answer your first question um what is user experience design? Like, um in a summary user experience design is the process design team used to create um products use products sometimes that provide meaningful and relevant experiences to users right um involve the design of the entire process of trying and integrating a product including aspects of branding design itself usability, and function um User experience design is also used interchangeably with um, user interface design, um, but usability can be like a subset that differentiates um, the two segments of um, user interface and user experience design. And just like I'll just move quickly to what dark products are and how to support them and what some of these examples are. Now, because user experience design is directly intertwined with businesses, um, because As a user experience designer, you're not only trying to help the user, but you're also trying to help the business, your employers, or whoever you're working for, or whatever the product is, or the protocols. Now, in some of these situations, making money is an essential part of any business, right? Um, So to create more profit, companies try try to build a more customer-centric culture, right? And they try to deliver a personalized experience that creates excellent customer service and use that strategy, right? And this is where good user experience design falls in. Because user experience design is about providing users with seamless and enjoyable interactions with products, right? Or in this particular situation, it can be used to manipulate the user and trick them into making decisions that aren't necessarily good for them but benefit the company, right? And then the latest is what we are referring to as dark patterns. Um, now, dark pattern is a term that was coined um, by... Uh, I don't remember his name right now, but I think it was the uk his um, design leader. And he defined it as the art of presenting the user with crafty interface that tricks users into doing things that they might not otherwise want to do, right? And of course, that person is not encouraged, right? They would trust the and take advantage of individuals by using your products, right? Sometimes they they seem to... Um, prove to deliver results, right? That pattern deliver results, right? Um, but then it's only short term because they eventually lead to frustrated customers, um, deleted accounts, and sometimes even. And you've most certainly interacted with a dark pattern um, if you've ever felt like you signed up for a service that you didn't actually want to, or you bought something accidentally. Um, these are like some typical examples of um, the dark aspect of user experience design, right? And, you know, I can go in a lot into it, but I just stop there for now.
0: Um, okay. So for example, let's say I sign up for a service. Um, and it's easy to sign up for it. There's that green accept button, everything, fill in my details, sign up. And, and and there's there's actually a service I have in mind right now. I will not name and shame, but um signed up, put in my my banking details, everything, I got my free one-year subscription, but now I want to cancel that subscription and I can, I cannot seem to find where to cancel. I can access the, the services, I just don't know where to go to cancel. It's it's extremely difficult. I think I'm now going to have to go to like the help button or support button or send an email or something. Would, would you call that a manifestation of dark
1: patterns? Definitely, that's like the number one um, example of that. Product. It's called the Roach Motel, and a classical example. Because I will name and shame, the classical example of that is Amazon, right? I'll I'll challenge anybody here to to try to delete their Amazon account. Try to if you have if you have an Amazon account, try to delete it. I promise you, it's gonna be the most frustrating experience that you've ever had in your life, right? So the Roach Motel is is a is a type of dark pattern where. You know companies use this trick to get people to sign up for premium subscriptions motherly but then like you said the sign-up process is fast it's simple but the cancellation options are usually hidden in some parts of the websites where the user would wouldn't normally think or naturally think to use right and facebook did this a while ago but then they switched it up where it was just a crazy experience for you to deactivate your account and the same thing with amazon and the way amazon does this is sometimes you don't even need to sign up for you to access Amazon services, which is great. Um, But then if you eventually sign up and something happens and you want to delete your account, um, you're not going to find it in the help. You're not going to find it in my account. You're not going to find it anywhere in the place that you naturally think to use. You'd find it somewhere down, down, down at the bottom of Amazon websites in the footer where they ask for more. And now when you go into more, um, there's like another layer of something that you need to pick. Then when you choose that, there's another layer of something that you need to pick. And then eventually when you're like at the third step is where they provide you with the option to delete your account. And now that's not even the height of it because when you hit that button, you're not going to be able to delete their accounts. When you hit that button, they ask you some very emotionally manipulating questions like, oh, why are you trying to leave us? Um, What happened? Um, What can we do to make you stay and if eventually you're frustrated and you're like, you know, I don't want this anymore. I just want to delete my account. And you choose to delete your account. They don't do that. They then direct you to a customer care service, like someone um, where you have to talk to. And then the person asks you or tries to do like a survey or question you or why you want to delete your account. And this person's role is basically to like manipulate you further and persuade you to not delete your account, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And then, if you're not frustrated at that point, because the, the normal person would have been frustrated by this point, they're already gone. Uh, but then, if you hold on and you deal with the customer service agent, mind you, this agent is not going to make it easy for you. You're going to ask them, "Oh, I want to delete your account." They'll do why. When you tell them why, they will tell you, "Oh, what can we do to help you? How can we, you know, serve you better? Or only, you know, is there like a different service you're trying to use? You know, if at the end of the day you, you like after spending like an hour." then you finally say, okay, you know what, we want to delete your account. They don't delete your account even at that point. It takes about three to five business days for your account to eventually, to eventually be deleted. Right? And that's what the person is going to tell you. They're going to tell you that, that that period, that waiting period is basically a time for you to come back to your senses and reactivate mm-hmm. your account. So the Roach Motel is, is a classic example of, of that pattern and that we experience you know, in our day-to-day lives.
0: Uh, and it's actually a very fitting name. Um, I know, of, I think most social media platforms give you a 30-day window and you first have to deactivate your account. You wait 30 days. And I'm sure by day 25, you are clicking back onto your account and you just want to see what Read1 is doing or what Chennai has posted. Um, but then just hearing you describe that very long process, I am thinking about the average everyday user that is possibly in a remote area um, and that hardly has internet access that possibly just may have struggled to buy a little bit of data to, to access the internet and now they have to go through this entire long process just to be able to um, unsubscribe from, from the particular service. So I'm not going to come on to Chennai and Um, Not to say men do not experience this, uh, do not get me wrong, but I'll ask Chennai to firstly speak about um, research that she has been doing, looking at access to the internet and access to simple things such as data for women and the digital divide, and how when you look at things such as the um, Roche Motel, how that would negatively impact on women that are already struggling to get onto the internet itself. Over to you, Jenna. I mean, first of all, this is really fascinating. You'd think you're reading a sci-fi book, but it's actually a reality, right? Like, to the extent to which um, someone is actually, it's quite interesting when you think about that, this is not exactly a new quality at which it happens, if you're thinking about the advertising spaces, and if you're thinking about, like, signing up for so when I think about it in terms of context, right, it's a matter of locating in the context of of digital inequality, and in this instance, we know digital inequality is a reflection of existing inequalities that we um, and the difference that comes out for men and women is because when you look at access to education and income, it's mainly women who fall short of the ladder, right? It's it's that experience of their like, their education their access to education is quite limited uh, because of social and cultural nuances that we exist in in terms of do you invest in the girl child to actually go to school and have that level of education. And then when you think about income um, capacity, you just have to think about the pay gap, the gender pay gap. So you have to locate that conversation of the digital gender divide and digital gender inequalities within that context. So as you were talking about these issues, I think what, what really stood out, Sometimes people sign up for a service because it gives you that free off and now and you've probably put in whatever access the service if it says we you require your your credit card. But then what happens when you can't actually sign out or delete the account? So that for me has that impact on in terms of how then experience of being able to fully use the internet. Someone actually thinks that they've gained so that they can access a service they want to access. And if you're thinking about it, for example, students who want to access an ed- editorial service for some work that they have, but now they get stuck in this Roche-Mittal because you do not know how to delete that particular page. And it extends over to, to what you had planned and budgeted because you were trying to address a financial issue of accessing a service. So you go for a, for a free service now you're in that position where you can't even like exit the service. So, some of us may be able, you know, like what, um, if you're thinking about digital inequality from that income perspective and having located that it's mainly women and gender diverse people without access to that level of income, what you then realize is that being stuck in this road without being able to cancel a subscribe on your services. And I think that's really. Because I'm sitting here and thinking, so how many times have I signed up for a service without really thinking about it? And then when you then think about it, to to, the extent, or to what extent can people actually have agency and control on these platforms? Because I think it's really important to locate this conversation in that, and that to what extent do you have control over what it is that you do online? There is the, I, you know, we can say, oh, the the... Terms of service are too long, so I don't want to read them. But then at the end of the day, it's that in that conversation, it's about like, okay, I, at least I know where the delete button is. But in this conversation, it seems as if it's... And I think that's a greater challenge when you think about um, technological tools that are developed to actually um, benefit from the biggest market, which is often women, right? So if you're thinking about like maybe cosmetics, if you're thinking about maybe you know, menstrual health applications and services. I, I don't know if there's been any assessment of dark pattern patterns. It's important to assess um, some applications and some sites have been designed to, to entice in particular women or, or even thinking about children as well and what it means for them to be engaging on these platforms. I think for me, what really came up as an example when I was thinking about children and the context of shared devices that we have On the african continent what does it mean for um if everyone is going on this like to look for something across different ages right what other information are they being directed to what other information is being brought up as they as they come onto these platforms and i think what's most interesting which is a conversation that i have, but the experience of children um, as they use these gadgets, especially if you're now going to download games with adverts in them that encourage you to get more adverts and get more adverts and get more adverts. Um, that for me is, is a great question of like, what is the experience of um, vulnerable communities when they do come online? When they actually do come get connected to the internet or they connect with very little resources and in a context of in education. Is the idea of privacy by design or taking away a manipulation of people and ending up people being locked up in debt cycles, for example, in the online space because of dark patterns? So that's what I just wanted to say from the book. Thank you so much, Tine. Um And from a from a user perspective, those are all the questions that I believe a lot of us are asking ourselves. And I will now come on to read one and to put you on the spot are duck patterns illegal? Because this sounds like it should be legal or it should be against some law or there should be a Consumer Protection Act somewhere out there that protects us consumers, especially vulnerable consumers, in particular children. And I'd say children because um, usually when they do get online, a lot of them are unsupervised or parents do not necessarily look at what children are doing online. And there are quite a lot of online services that are targeted children, per se, that ask them to subscribe. Um, I have seen this where it says, subscribe and comment before we get onto this and this. And um, the kids immediately subscribe. They actually do a countdown. It's it's fun. You would be tempted to subscribe as well. Uh, but this is a child. So they are quite um, a lot easier to manipulate than an adult. And at the same time, you have vulnerable other vulnerable groups like Chennai State. Targeted by these dark patterns, or that fall prey to these dark patterns and do not necessarily have the recourse to be able to get themselves out of this. For example, Roche Motel or the other types of dark patterns. So, read one are there laws that can protect us um, on the continent and um, also looking at beyond the continent? Is this discussion being had? Uh, are there policies that are in in draft form or that are already
1: law? All right, uh, uh, I'll take it from you. Uh, I'll take it from where you stopped, uh, which is uh, looking at the vulnerable population and all of that. I mean, um, Chennai, which um, amplified how much of a problem this is. In, in in the course of our research, we found really intriguing um, things. I mean, from some, um, from I mean, I, I know there's a way which in which um, if you see something repeatedly, um, there's a good chance um, it could become your truth. Um, I mean, like the, um, there's this popular saying, like you repeat a lie too many times, uh, even though it might become true, it's still not true, but then there's this effect there, yeah, I mean, that's really, especially when if this alternative view or whatever it is is being um, amplified. And uh, to put this into context, um, we've got situations where you have a version of that platform you call the the, the friends farm, and that's when you have um, people um, sort of. So this 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 was like a model which LinkedIn was um, LinkedIn started with um, a couple of years back. So in that very early phase, where you could uh, where they could actually get an access into your contact list and try to like connect you or send some sort of invitation to people on your contact list to come and join. Then after that initial invitation that you're actually um, asking the person to join. Then they go on sending subsequent emails to that person, and they make you look like the email is actually emanating from you. That's one. Um, that's one face to it. Then you've got something like first continuity, hidden costs, um, price comparison prevention. Essentially, this like technically engineering manipulation into our everyday usage of um, the internet and the way we interface with technology. So somehow, because of lack of options, because they put this thing in your faces. Um, in our faces um, with those interesting colors, hiding the options that probably even save for your consumer um, in lighter in lighter shades. So what you'll see eventually is you see people ending up making decisions um, that are not really favorable to them, but rather to the brand. And Uche has rightly said that eventually in the long run, I mean in the short term, there might be little wins for you, but in the long run, you have unsatisfied con- uh, consumers, which of course your customer center will probably be dealing with that. You probably end up dealing with litigation at some point as well. So there's a longer term, the long term, um, usage of this might probably, um, spill into some losses for you as well. So, but to answer the question, other legal framework for it is actually quite, quite, quite very technical and, um, quite slippery because there is currently no legal framework that I know and that we found in our research that specifically address this practice. And that's because it's hard to somehow distinguish between persuading a customer to buy something and manipulating a customer to buy. It's a very thin line. I mean, it's like, um, I don't know what parallels I can draw, but it's very, very thin line sometimes. Persuasion, it's not illegal. Manipulation, it's what's not illegal in that sense itself, but it's unethical. Well, you know, ethics is something that is quite subjective and is actually quite subjective. I mean, and it differs across the spectrum. So, uh, what we've seen and the reaction we've seen across the world is. Um, um, in the United States, for example, where you have so many big tech giants and where this is a popular practice. So, um, a couple of years ago, there was a proposal um, in the parliament or in the legislature to have um, a law called the Beto Act, which literally says if you have a certain number of users on the platform, which is way over a million, I think about 3 million users or there, about maybe a million, I can't remember, um, then you should implement some things. Now, you are expected to sort of create a process where you make some transparency declaration as to what you do, how you do, and how you do those things. Then it goes on to place some safeguards that actually in favor of um, consumers. But if we do bring it back home, we bring it back home to see what are the existing legal framework for this thing. Again, one thing we need to keep in mind is if you see that pattern sometimes, and especially for the service you use so, so, so frequently, you might not know. Anyone who has tried booking an hotel before or making an hotel reservation, um, using any of these, um, whatever, all these hotel aggregators. You'll notice when you're trying to book, I mean, you just want to book an hotel, right? you just want to get out. And often than not, they always make the interface so easy you know, from looking for favorable, um, from location preference to um, whatever it is that you want. But you see that while you're trying to book, or maybe you are trying to take your time to make a decision, you'll probably get a pop up or maybe something on the screen that is telling you um, about 60 something people have actually looked at this same place in the last few hours. Um, only four of these offenses actually left, which means it triggers some sense of urgency in you. So sort of, hey, it looks like persuasion, but it's actually manipulation. But that's not even where it gets tricky. Where it gets tricky is when you're even bullied to make some decision. So I'll give an example. So part of our decision, uh, part of our research, is something that goes on like the chance you can acquire a dash product are really really low. And you know, if you are really an egonomaniac, let me use that word, or you, um, if your self esteem is going to get hurt by things like that. There's a very good chance you are probably want to prove them wrong that no, no, the chances is not that you end up buying the product. But that's like literally bullying you into making a decision, and that's manipulation. That's more persuasion in any way. So, again, because the line is so thin, that is actually so hard to make the distinction. And again, you really can't also criminalize things that is meant to, like, trigger psychological and behavioral pattern or to influence psychological and behavioral pattern on humans. Because, of course, on one spectrum, it looks like persuasion, On another spectrum, it looks like manipulation. But when the line gets too far or when it stretches too far, that's where we have a couple of existing legal frameworks that we have in place uh, that sort of looks into it. And from an African point of view, uh, part of what we saw is we have, like, things around electronic transaction law. It's actually very clear about uh, contracting. And when you speak to contracting, and um, there are laws about um how, I mean, what constitute in um, terms of a valid contract, how you can't, um I mean, force someone or maybe compel them um, illegally to actually make a decision. So all of these things are what we looked at. We look at data protection point of view because that pattern will actually create a gross, uh, create a situation where you have gross privacy violation. Which means, um, Amanda, you gave a situation of kids who jump on games. But some of the things we found, too, so you see people asking, Think of every quiz you take, uh, BuzzFeed, for example, with quiz on BuzzFeed, and sometimes you get questions in between it that are completely unrelated to the line of quiz you're taking. And honestly, they are actually not related to the quiz, but they're actually kind of extracting information from you. So you end up seeing there are some things you do that actually take more information or your personal data more than they should. And you are questioning, oh, what happened to data minimization? Don't take more than you need. So. Also, if you look at it in that spectrum, there are a number of things around fairness, around transparency, around accountability from these platforms that speaks to data protection point of view. Then we have the consumer protection point of view and from the consumer protection review, the common thread we found in few African countries that have a consumer protection law is that they all also criminalize the act of making a representation that eventually is untrue. So and when you look at this sometimes too, there are some of these things that are actually untrue, like when you look at flight activators. And they tell you um, in so-so minutes if you're not careful, this might probably fly up, bullying you. If you look behind it, there's actually no one doing all of this. There's no 20 people looking at anything. There's no 40 people looking at anything. It's just a brand putting out that information to actually make people make decisions that are favor. So we look from consumer protection point of view, from competition laws point of view, electronic transaction laws, and of course, um, data protection law. So, um, that's, uh, those are like the few legal frameworks that we have that when we stretch them or when we construct them in a very progressive sense, they can sort of offer some sort of protection to, uh, to consumers, um, as it is. But currently, um, there's no single framework that expressly mentions that pattern as, um, as something that is actually illicit. But there are so many inferences where we could offer, we can stretch the law as it is right now to sort of protect consumers. Thank you. Well, uh, thank you so much for that
0: read one. And, um, as a brief follow up, and I'll ask you to respond to this quite briefly is what happens if I find that I've been manipulated, let's say I am uh, looking to book a hotel and the website tells me that there is only one room left. Um, and it actually turns out there is not one room left, but I quickly panicked and booked that particular room because I just felt it's going to go, so I need to get it. So I have technically been manipulated. Um, and let's, we can talk about the Nigerian Consumer Protection Act or uh, the data protection re- regulations in Nigeria. Is there anything that would protect me? And would I be able to go to, let's say, a regulator or a re- regulatory authority? and report this or a, okay, you obviously can't go to a police station because it's not a crime, but where can I go?
1: All right. Thank you for that. I mean, I'm a big fan of saying something like, um, you know, when we have this data protection laws, consumer protection laws, um, the laws are just um, there sometimes, except we use them. If we don't really don't test the laws, you never know um, the extent that we have. So for me, my advice, if you have been manipulated, you can actually approach um, the Consumer Protection Authority in your country or the Data Protection Authority and sort of make a complaint. How you weave the complaint around it, there are so many provisions under the Consumer Protection Law, for example, around um, representation, around manipulating people into um, um, and buying things. So if you weave your complaint around that particular provision of the law, for example, um, the, um, I'm not saying I'm sure, but I think the regulator has a legitimate um, re- illegitimate, um, case to look at it. And of course, from the data protection point of view, there are issues around transparency and also issues around fairness and look at the principles of data protection. So also, if if they're asking you for more data than actually is necessary, you can also invoke things like data minimization as a principle. So when you weave your complaint around some of these issues, um, there's a very good chance that the data protection authority will be looking at it. Um, In 2010, when LinkedIn pulled this off, uh, it resulted in, I think, about $13 million uh, litigation. And of course, beyond also the regulators, there's also the option to approach, um, the courts to interpret some of these issues. But again, like I said, we can infer, um, slight protections from only good framework that we have. But, uh, um, as it is right now, uh, the legislative proposal we'll be making is also in the future, we'd like to see, um, a law actually expressly, uh, mention, um, their patterns, address it in all these manifestations. And of course, look to protect consumers.
0: Okay, thank you so much for that. Okay, where does aggressive advertising end and manipulation begin? When you, as a designer, are sitting behind your laptop, and you are you are setting up this Roach Motel, for, for for example.
1: Um. So like like we do and say like he explained earlier, it's a pretty fine line, right? And that's that's the tricky part, right? Because sometimes you have to think about the ethical repercussions, right? And ethics is something that people get to define for themselves. Um, the LinkedIn example is one of my favorite When it comes to dark person Because um, 13 minutes was a crazy amount for them to pay right? um, It was in 2015, I think um, And what they did was, was you know, they, they asked people to drop like, their email addresses They told people that they were going to create a stronger network That was advertising They were advertising to people that Okay, if you let us connect with your email We'll give you a stronger network Because it'd be a network of people that you already know but then LinkedIn used this address to send invitations to emails to all of their contacts, right? Without those knowledge, right? They framed the copy or they framed the way that they advertised in a different way, right? And then they were found. They were fined, what, $30 million, of course. And they actually recorded about, what, 75% increase in, in user signups at that period in 2015, right? But then when they were fined, um, given the number, of peop- the number of people on LinkedIn at the time, right? I think the fine resulted to about $10 per member. So they were charged about $10 per member, right? And if you're charged $10 per member, imagine how many members it had to be for its amount. About there's so many people that do this, right? Microsoft used bait and switch when they were trying to get people to upgrade to Windows 10, right? And it's an ethical situation because people companies tend to justify this in the most ridiculous of ways. Um I was reading an article earlier today where um in the US, right, there's a company that was trying to justify um, deceptive design, mm-hmm. right, and then they, they did a test to justify this, right, and in their test, they were able to successfully convince about ninety nine percent of their users to sign away naming rights for their firstborn son and to grant access to browsing history to their mothers, right, and the way they did this was they created a fake, a fake, um, like a fake test, right where they asked people to sign up for something and they provided a terms and conditions. But then 99% of people that signed up did not read the terms and conditions. And in the terms and conditions, right, there were all of the things like, oh, we get rights to name your firstborn child. We get rights to visit you once in a month. We get rights to all of these ridiculous things, right? And they were basically doing that to prove that it's not their fault. Users did not read the terms and conditions. So they signed they didn't they were like, "Oh, they didn't force people to sign the terms and conditions were right there. You could have read it, but you didn't read it so you're on your own right and that was basically what that company was trying to, was trying to express with that fake test right so people justify it in the ridiculous in like ridiculous ways right um There's another example right when you think about it ethically, and you think about it from the position of a marketing manager or a sales representative whose job or whose who's life right now depends on the amount of conversion rates that he can get the company to within the next quarter or whose job is um, depending on meeting their OKRs or their business OKRs, right? So people are feeling this pressure from the managerial position to deliver numbers and to deliver sales, to deliver, um, you know, user retention, right? To do whatever they have to do to get the business to where the business wants to be at. The truth of the matter is it's very short-term because that then, that then like pressurizes them into using different kind of languages or using dark parts and using different types of tricks and, and manipulative methods to convince users to do things that they don't want to do. For example, right, when, um, another example would be um, hidden costs, right, mm-hmm. hidden costs basically is a way where, you know, you're, you're shopping online, people don't tell you about taxes or delivery costs or additional charges, until you get to the very last page, right. And then by the time you press confirm, the price just changed from, I don't know, $20 to $50. And it's already too late because, you know, you're, you're like, you've invested too much into it. You're, you're at this point, you've already clicked on the button and you just withdraw. Another example is the sneak into basket. Now this is very interesting because people see the sneak into basket every time. And I don't know if they don't realize it or if they just choose to ignore it, right? But here, right, sites or websites sneakily add a- items to your basket by incorporating pre-selected checkboxes or con- confusing the opt-out choices, right? And it's basically a way for businesses to increase sales in a new product or to increase sales in a product that's on promotion, right? And in, on the business side, or on the manager side, like you're happy, you can see that your product is, the, the plan has worked, right? You, you've seen more sales. GoDaddy does this a lot where if you're trying to buy a domain, they tell you that the price of a domain is um, maybe what, $13 per, per year, um, or I don't know, $12 per year, you're trying to buy like a com or something, right? And you're seeing that, you're seeing that price in your mind. Maybe you only have $20, or maybe you only have like what $50 in your account, and you just want to buy a domain because you want to start a business sometime in the next two years, right? And you see that $13, and you're going through all this process, I don't know, two, three steps along the line. And at the final checkpoint, maybe like three steps, they've added like three new things into your cart. They've added um data security. I don't know, they've added SEO stuff. They've added like a bunch of crazy stuff. And then the total bill amounts to like $59. And you've invested so much into this, you know, at this point, you don't even want to, you don't even want to go back. And then you, you couple that with, with, um, the classic model where they're pressuring you and they're bullying you and they're telling you, oh, two people just bought this, oh, we're running out, oh um, this is about to sell out. Um, you know, 21 other people are looking at this thing, and you're you're right there. You you're you're focused on trying to make a decision, you're freaking out. Okay, do I need to do this? Do I have to do this? If I don't do this, I'm not gonna get another opportunity. And basically, that is when you feel trapped to make that decision, right? And as a designer right um the the problem the problem now says right who's responsible for these kind of things right um who gets to decide um when to or why not to or how to maneuver around these things right who gets to decide now that person is bad and we should stop doing it because on the designer part right on the it just comes out to ethics, right? Ethics as a human being, right? Because on, on the on the designer part or on the marketing part, right, the person is just taking orders. He's taking orders from the top level. At the top level part, the manager or the CEO, whoever it is, is trying to make more sales. Money is important to him, right? And the truth of the matter then becomes that um or the natural conclusion is that you know people look to the designers and they say, because we operate at the intersection of the user and business wants, we Have the power to keep both sides in balance, right? And then articles or people then encourage designers to push back on OKRs or to speak against these features that don't align with their values. Basically, like we have the opportunity to speak against it, be like, okay, this thing isn't right. But then people paint designers as referees in the game of tug of war between business and users. Meanwhile, designers are just the rope, right? People are pulling us. And they're like, okay, users on the other side are pulling us, and like, okay, we don't want to do this. Businesses are pulling us and saying, okay, we want to do this. So designers are just the rope; they're not really the referees, right? And they're trying to find ways to. Most designers are trying to find ways to. Basically, find a safe space where they're not in the blame. They're like, okay, I took the order from the businesses, or I, I was to do. I shouldn't be blamed for this, but the truth is, you have the you have the you have the freedom to decide for yourself and speak up against this okay, or so speak up against these features that people are trying to introduce, and be like, okay, no, um, there's a better way to do this, or there's a better way to get people to trust us. There's a better way to get people to buy in our services. We don't manipulation is not a great way to market our services, right? You know, um, and that's the that's the that's how I that's how I personally differentiate my my design work, right? I see it as, you know, there's manipulation and there's persuasion, right? Manipulation is where, is, is where you trap people into making a decision, right? You basically put people in a box, right? And another example of that is con- confirmed Shaming. I think we do want to touch on that a little bit where he was like, Confirm Shaming is a typical example where, um, you know, there's, there's, you're on a website and there's a pop-up, right? And then yeah. the pop-up is probably giving you like a free service or something. um. Or they're trying to sell you to subscribe or they're trying to get you to get a promotion right and the yes button says yes i'd like to subscribe for 30 percent off or a free service and the no button says um no i won't subscribe because i like to suffer or no i don't like good things in life or no something that emotionally bullies you or manipulates you to or shame you into saying yes Everybody loves free things. You don't have to make me feel horrible because I don't want to buy into your service, right? So as designers, right, it's it's on you to say, okay, no, I don't want to trap this person. An easier way to go about it would be to guide people into making the service. And that's the difference between manipulative design and persuasive design. Manipulative design traps you. Persuasive design guides you, right? And when you're guiding someone, you're not, you know, but I'll pause it there.
0: Okay, thank you so much for that. And as you're explaining it to me, it just became extremely clear that there is a very thin line um, between you trying to market a product and persuade someone to use your product uh, versus you in the end manipulating them. Um, we are running out of time, so I'm going to quickly go on to Megan's question. I think Ridon has read it, but is what is Megan is essentially asking is, do we need new laws or should we try to amend the laws that we already had to cater for dark packet for, for duck patents? If we amend the laws, um, we'll also come across the issue of um, there's cross-cutting of sectors and there's cross-cutting of issues. So let's say if, if you amend the Consumer Protection Act in a particular country, um, will we then have an issue where we haven't dealt with some data protection provisions? And we also need to then amend the data protection. Act in that particular country. Uh, how do you suggest we go uh, about this? And I would also ask you to then also give us your concluding remarks from a policy and legal perspective. All
1: right. Uh, thank you. Thank you, uh, thank you, Amanda. thank you, Migan, for the question. I mean, I was trying to um, try to, um, type my response. Yeah. I mean, my, I mean, the I mean, my own uh, saying that be specifically addresses because um, it manifests in. I mean, depending on what model you're looking at, um, if you look at um, the founder or the person who, the UX designer who actually first used that phrase, I mean, it has about, maybe about 14 different manifestations of what that pattern is. Um, Then if you look at um, the Princeton university developed uh, their own model, um, and they have about almost 10, somewhat related, but I mean, you see the overlapping and you see the overlap in, um, in those models that they developed to identify um, dark patterns. So, I mean, if we just, um, if we want to use the existing body of law, then it means um, we're looking at bit-on-bit here and there, that offers just slight pr- uh, protections here and there. It's similar to when, um, when you're in a country, where you don't have maybe an express data protection law, but rather um, the protection maybe offers privacy in your constitution, Maybe some bit of sector-specific laws scattered around. That's the same. I think that's the same picture we we'll find ourselves. So, uh, as pretty much we have um, the consumer protection framework um, trying to um, sort of guard, um, con- sort of put, offer safeguard to consumers around uh, manipulation and all of that. Uh, often than not, the way these laws are couched, they are not couched in the sense to um, sort of conceive what this manipulation could be in the digital space. So And that's why the peculiarity of how the digital space works has to sort of uh, be taken into consideration in future amendments of law. Uh, we really don't need to revamp, we don't need to have a distinct body of law. It might just be um, some sort of amendment in the language we use, sort of offer that flexible approach such that whether it's the judiciary that is making the interpretation or the data protection authority or the consumer protection body that is interpreting it, they are able to sort of take into court take into cognizance the context of how the digital space works. And as I'm going you know, to respond to that. So in my final um, my final um, um, departing words for me would be that uh, we can't make um, designers the judge of uh, what is right or wrong, because to do what is right or wrong, again, is a question of ethics, which is very subjective. And of course, there is a paymaster who is giving the instructions. So I think the obligation is on um, companies, organizations, uh, to sort of um, be more transparent, and when, in, when we say transparency, we say transparency in the full strength of transparency. Um, part of the research we did recently was looking at administration apps, and we found part of what we found was very big privacy notices, for example, that really didn't disclose the extent of what's being done or the processing being done and when we took it oh, a step okay. further when we analyzed the apps, analyzed the websites and all of that, we found out that these people are actually offering those data to third parties literally actually selling it. I mean, you are probably trying to spin it around in your head. Why would anyone want to send anyone's menstrual cycle data? But this is what happens. So again, we need more transparency. Um, We need fairness in the sense of fairness. We need more accountability on the part of um, companies. Then, of course, we need regulators to also step up to do their jobs when people make complaints. But more importantly, it's for organizations to actually behave responsibly, such that they can actually avoid lawsuits or avoid fines and sanctions staying endemic to their reputation because the ghost truth is once it gets out and there is a big when I mean consumers are becoming more aware day by day whether from data protection point of view whether from consumer protection point of view they are more aware about they want to take control of what happens their options they are more aware about the protections the law offers them as well so it's better you start doing business responsibly or rather be you suffer that reputational damage, which in economic I mean in economic metrics is that to actually put the value on uh, it for me, thank
0: you very much. Okay, thank you so much for that free one. Uh, Chennai, I know we've run out of time, but I'll just ask you to briefly give us your concluding remarks, um, especially from a user perspective. Um, Thank you so much, Amanda. It was quite interesting listening to it, and I think what uh, the work that entails is, is rightly, as Reardon has pointed out, people are aware of these issues. One, what we need to work towards is capacitating them with actually distinction of what it means to be um, trapped within the concept of DAC. then to raise um, capacity into you know more life together to actually then be able to um, account for these processes because I think what's really crucial is oftentimes this issue and things it's happening to them alone. But when you come into these conversations, that's when you actually just realize that there can be much more um, a movement that can be done against data misuse, against this kind of practices that end up manipulating people and trapping them onto platforms and then thinking about the social um, injustices as a result of these practices in these online spaces. So I commend you for the research that has been done and for actually having this conversation so that people can can be aware that this is an issue. you are not just... Failing to delete your account, but there is something a mechanism that's happening that's behind it. So yeah, those are my closing remarks. Thank you so much for that, Chennai. Um, Uche, uh, your concluding remarks.
1: Um, so I think on, on the designer part, right, that we can do as well, right? Right, um, and it's on it's on two parts, right? We we need to be able to step up and communicate with our businesses and communicate with our managers and convince them or. Not convinced. Convinced might not be the right word, but then communicate effectively with them on business reasons why they shouldn't implement dark patterns. Because as you know, the business people they respect businesses and they see the businesses right. So they want to they need to be able to know that okay, like like everyone has said, right? Like consumers are starting to be aware of you know the the, the repercussions of dark patterns, right? Um, buyers' remorse can be a crazy thing because when you have buyers' remorse. Um, you know, or, or you, you use the sneak into the basket method to get people to buy things they don't want to. And then when eventually the thing gets delivered and people experience buyer's remorse, they call they call customer care, right? And then it's 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 the customer care, right, businesses or or it's the business that spends that much money to listen to customers' complaints and try to handle them. They then have to process returns and then have to repackage products, or then have to, you know. Because customers will return things that they don't want, right? And you can't if you have a return currency, There's nothing you can do about that, um, and that's like some extra expense again. And then another level of expenses is marketing team then has to spend more money trying to um, do damage control for the situation that has happened, or like for for bad public relations. Or, or you know, there's there's so many there's so many aspects of the business that would eventually be be affected with the results of, of, of that patterns, right? On the user experience side or, or on the conversion side of it, right, you're seeing the rates go up short term, but then long term, the other arms of the businesses will then start to suffer because of this, right? Customer care is taking calls every day with people shouting and yelling at them and telling them that they, they did not mean to buy this or they want to delete their account, let us go, you know, um, And then people are trying to manage returns, trying to manage shipments and trying to manage how to, you know, revalue their products. Um, Marketing team is stopping at the same time, right? And then on the design part, right? Um, Or if you're trying to use persuasive design to to, to guide people instead of manipulative designs, right? It comes down to three important things, right? Um, And I would define them as integrity to do the job with best intentions or heart. Um, Competence, because you need to be able to handle the job and the challenges that it might bring as a designer. And you need capability to be able to deliver the results, right? And at the an expected time, and also be able to deliver in a way that will serve business goals, right? And I've read a lot about process design. I've read a lot about it, right? So line as well, right? There's still some things that can be misconstrued as dark patterns, but it's it's an easier way to go about it because. Um, For example, instead of using bait bait and switch um, to allure people, right? You can be using engagement methods to set out the things that people want to do and give people user control or give people freedom to decide for themselves, right? Instead of using hidden costs, you can be using explicit gains to define um, or provide people with what they tend to gain, and you know show them, okay, we also offer this, 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 and this. Do you want any of this, right? Instead of sneaking it, sneaking it into their basket, you can just say it up front and be like, okay, these are the extra services that we offer. Do you want any of this? And then people decide that they see the value in it, they see the gain in it, and they want it, right? Instead of using, I don't know, misdirection, you can try to orient people, right? Misdirection is is where the attention of the user is being focused on one thing to d- distract its attention from another thing that's happening in the background, right? Um you, you can stop using trick questions and you can use treat, treat questions instead, right? There's so many, there's so many ways that, that we can rethink the role of a designer in this, right? Um, and I think one, one um, important thing to mention is that, what's important to realize is that as designers, our work has a massive impact, right? Um, our work has a massive impact on people. It can harm as much as it can help people, right? Um, and that's, that's what designers need to be aware of.
0: Um, thank you so much, everybody, for joining us. And uh, I wish we had a lot more time. Hopefully, Read One would we will will host us on his new um, channel. He will possibly share that on on uh, on the social media platforms. But um, dark patterns are there. We experience them each and every single day. I hope that we'll be able to pick them up more and more and um, complain a lot more send a few emails out there and uh, educate people about what are duck patterns and how can they, they can go about getting any recourse. Um, thank you so much, Uche, to read one. Thank you to the Africa Asia platform for giving us a platform to be able to have this discussion. And um, have a good night. Ready?